going to any other place, any other pit stop. This is home. This is where our heart still is. And Linda and I love every single one of you dearly and are just uh, so pleased and blessed to be here with you tonight. So is that all right? Yeah. All right. So Lindy's got a bottle of water. She's going to throw it at me when I, if I get off track or say anything inappropriate. That was the talk. And I'm also supposed to throw in a magic word during the message at some point. So look for that. Um, you'll know when I do it because Lindy will maybe shout up and say amen, right? That was the agreement, or you're going to give me $5 or something, the magic word. Um, Bridging the generations, it's kind of weird being at Bridging the Generations because I'm on the bridge sort of in between generations. I'm young, I'm 30 years old, which I know is still very young, but I feel like I'm in the car on the bridge heading to the other part of the generation with, with the minivan and everything else. I'm just probably one kid away from being in the older part of the generation town, but it's... It's great. What he said, it's so true that the story of the Bible, the story of creation, the story of salvation, it's for everybody. It's for all people at all places at all times. And that the family of God is just that. It's a family. It's all inclusive for all who would confess and believe in the Son of Jesus Christ that we should do these more often. We should come together and we should gather um, just really as a family doing that. And I also think we should take a vote for the genes action. I think that's pretty cool too. Hey, <laughs> I'm pretty comfortable. Yeah, it's, it, it works. I got, got my skinnies and, and everything else. Um, but it has been just a, a great weekend. Like I said, great to be back in the Bay. And um, yeah, just already God has been so faithful, done a lot of great things. The Giants won yesterday, which was good times. Uh, we had Val's Burgers uh, today, which was very good times. Um, it's the 10-year anniversary, which is, is, is great. So it's just been good to get some time away and just uh, really just soak in and enjoy a little bit of God's presence with, with family and friends and everything else while we're here. So um, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to park a little bit in one passage. Um, it's hard for me to preach anything else than out of the book of Acts lately. Uh, at Soul Survivor, we've really been stuck in in the book of Acts. We've been on a journey of going um, through, the, through the whole book, verse by verse almost, um, since really early spring. So we've been on a, a real a long journey of looking at the book of Acts and have just been really excited and challenged and stirred by the passages and everything that we're reading. And just um, also, if I could be honest, a little frustrated too. Um, my dad has got a lot of great stories. I, I, I hear a lot of their stories. There's some stories in particular that I hear reoccurring that have to do with seventh game of the World Series, Twins versus Yankees, 19... Twins versus uh, Dodgers, 1965. Uh, Everywhere we go, any setting that we have an opportunity at a baseball game, especially, he likes to tell those stories. Or there's other stories, eighth grade city championships, growing up in Minneapolis on the basketball court, and just like you know, to tell people about his great accomplishments. But I think they're, they're amazing. But I don't know about you guys, I love hearing those things. And the same with the book of Acts. I love reading these things, and I love to see that people are getting healed and filled with the Spirit, and the church is exploding right here at the inception in the most unlikely of circumstances. And the most, I mean, you couldn't pick a more horrible, really random time to start a movement than this time in history, and to see how it exploded and how it just set off. And so exciting to read that, but also saying, God, I want my story. I want to see this. I want to see the church of Acts here today in this modern context. So on one hand, very disturbed to read these things. On the other hand, it's like, God, we want our story. What are you going to be doing with this generation, the generations to come? Because the cool thing about the book of Acts is it ends on this really random note. 
You know, Paul shipwrecked, goes off to Rome, and that's kind of the end. There's no resolve to it. It's on purpose because that story is still unfolding in our midst. That that's not it. We don't close the book, say, okay, thank you very much, we're out the door here. But that God wants to continue to unfold the story with his people, with his church, to bring out the kingdom of God. It's crazy. I don't understand it, why he does that, why he chooses to use us to do that. He does that because that's what he wants to do. He's God. But we get to join in with that. That's so exciting. So we're going to do that today. We're going to Look in here a little bit at the book of Acts. Um, the thesis of the whole book of Acts, you don't have to turn there. We're going to be jumping around a little bit, but mainly in Acts, um, is found in, in chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus speaking to his disciples here. I'm going to go for the uh, arrowhead water. Ergo, I shall drink my water. Mm-hmm. The magic word is ergo. You owe me $5. Um, Obviously, Acts follows the Gospels and the story of Jesus' life and ministry on the earth and hanging out with this ragtag group of people called the disciples who more often than not got things wrong more than they got things right. And I love reading the stories of the disciples and seeing uh, just the many teaching points that occurred along the way. And Jesus was continually teasing his disciples about this presence, this power, this thing to come. He would say things to them like, Guys, I'm not going to be here always. But you know what? Actually... It's okay that I'm going to be leaving, which for them, that's stunning. You've already said you're the Messiah. We believe that. We're still trying to work that out, some of us. And now you're telling us that you're going to be leaving and that it's better that you leave. That doesn't make sense to us. But why did he say that? He said, because I'm giving you someone who was greater. (laughs) Hear that in the ears that they heard that. The Messiah walking with them. The lame being healed. The crippled walking. And he's saying, guys, I'm leaving, but... It's all good. I'm giving you someone who is greater. And that greater thing, that greater person is the person of the Holy Spirit. So he teased them throughout the Gospels with this. And finally, in Acts verse 1-8, they begin to just get a greater glimpse of this. When he tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. How do you know when the Holy Spirit comes? Well, usually it's accommodated by power. (laughs) It's a good sign. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what is the purpose of this power? I'm sure they said, yes, give us that power. And they saw that, right? And in the next chapter at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell and was manifested, the Holy Spirit has always been there, moving throughout all of, all of creation, everywhere. It says the Spirit hovered over the waters in Genesis. He's always been there, but He fell in a particular way in Acts 2. So what is the function of the the power of the Holy Spirit. He says it quite plainly. To be my witness. To be my witness. Again, probably a really encouraging thing. God, we want your power. Okay, what's that power for? To be your witness. What does a witness do? This is You can talk back and forth. It's all good. Somebody who testifies. Somebody who really speaks of what they have seen. What they have experienced. Remember, these are people that walked with Jesus. He's saying, I'm giving you power now to be my witness. Everything that you've seen, all the things that you've heard, it's now on you to be my witness, to proclaim, to testify what you have seen and what you have heard. And that's our mandate as well. Um, We won't get too much into that, but that word witness also means, and this is the part where maybe it's challenging, it's the same word, it's interchangeable with the word martyr. So not only do you need to be somebody who's prepared to witness to testify what you've seen and what you heard but i want you to be so just empowered by the work of the holy spirit that you're willing actually to lay down your life 
for what you've seen, for what you've heard. That this just isn't about talking and proclaiming. That this is gonna, there's going to be some action steps with this. And guys, people that heard this, Stephen, the first martyr, martyrs that follow in the book of Acts, they really lived up to that, didn't they? With everything that they had, they witnessed, they proclaimed the goodness of God, even when it cost them everything. And I think often that we think, okay, well, it was easy for them in the book of Acts. It was easy for the apostles, easy for the disciples. They walked with Jesus. They experienced some tremendous things. You know, we read about the stories of Paul and and the ways that God used him. And we think, well, there was something, you know, kind of special about Paul and you know this is an easy time and and we have it so rough here in the 21st century you know we live in a society that doesn't accept truth in absolute terms where morality is subjective where you can't tell me what's right or wrong because I know what's right or wrong for me and so we think often that this we have a much challenging setting How, we want to proclaim we want to be witnesses yes but in our culture, in our society, it's really, really difficult to do that. And we think they had it easy and we had it rough, which is not entirely true. Like I hinted at earlier, you couldn't pick a worse time to start a movement than what was going on here when Christianity bursted out into the scene. And we're going to take a glimpse here. Um, we're going to look at Paul during his second missionary journey. We know the story of Saul to Paul. And we're going to pick it up here. And he's on his second missionary journey. And he's going to a place called Athens. And Athens, guys, we think we had it tough. I went to school in Santa Cruz for, for a while. And uh, there, there's some tough discussions to have on the street there with people who will reject everything that you say. This is kind of like uh, Santa Cruz back then a little bit. So we're going we're gonna to peek into uh, what's going on here in the setting. It's in Acts 17, and we're going to start at verse 16. Is that all right? Yeah. All right. Mm. It's good to see Pastor Tom rocking out in the old guitar. Yeah, oh, we're talking about. It's the guitar that's old. I thought you were going to take off for a second there. That baby. I was waiting for some finger tapping. Yeah. Hang out a little bit. Not so much. All right. All right. Acts 17, starting at verse 16. Um, just to say, uh, he was hanging out previously with uh, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy. And there were some things going on in the city that he was previously, riots, which usually happened when they went to towns and started proclaiming the message of God, which is pretty awesome. We need more riots in that fashion. Um, so they, uh, they, they sent Paul to Athens kind of to, to chill out for a little bit, sort of on a missionary furlough to, to, to get away, and they were going to come and follow him later. So while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, Athens he was greatly distressed to see... Um, are we all good? Acts 17, verse 16. Right. All right, just checking. Hey, check that out. You should maybe put my picture up side by side with that, though, too. Okay. That could be a distraction. What translation? I do in the old NIV here, I think, probably. Yeah. Um, so he was greatly distressed to see the city that was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. That was his normal mode of operation. He would go first to the, to the Jews to proclaim the goodness in the synagogues, and then after that he would go to the, the God-fearers, the Gentile believers. So a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, 
What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. First time hearing this. (laughs) Verse 19, Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time, interesting, doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Are you okay? (laughs) Was that related to the text or to me? Verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And that word religious may sound like a compliment, but it's really the word suspicious. <laughs> For as I walked around, Paul was smart, man. He knew how to use words. He, was, he knew what he was doing. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. And I would. I would love to just jump into what happens next to go into one of the most meticulously written sermons in all of of the scriptures. But we're going to park here for a little bit before Paul begins to proclaim that. Um, Just a little bit about Athens. Um, It had once been a great military power, but now the Romans are there. They're occupying the place, so it's not as influential as it used to be militarily. But it is a center of thought and reason. It is maybe the equivalent to, I don't know, Yale, Princeton, kind of the the northeast region of America, where a lot of high thought and philosophers and just subject of life and reason and everything else. It was the home of Socrates or Socrates, if you're a Bill and Ted fan. I think that's from Bill and Ted. Um, (laughs) Was that from Bill and Ted? Uh, uh, Plato, Aristotle, Alexander the Great, all came from this area. Um, a lot of the, the philosophies that we study today, if you guys studied philosophy at all, came from this area. Democracy <laughs> was birthed out of this time. So it's a really influential place for Paul to go into and step out and proclaim for the first time this message of a risen Messiah. It was also a city of many gods, extremely polytheist. They had gods for everything, for every occurrence, for every place, and for every time. It was said that there were more statues of the gods in Athens than in the rest of Greece all put together, and that in Athens it was easier to meet a god than it was a real man. So ladies, (laughs) odds not so good. (laughs) There was some half a million people in the city of Athens, and easily that was a god or goddess for every person. Extremely polytheist for sure. So Paul, seeing this, as my mom is feeling this right now, um, became greatly distressed. The text tells us that he was distressed. And that word distressed, um, it's kind of like annoyed. Um, I haven't really experienced this with Olivia yet because she's obviously a perfect angel and I haven't really had to to discipline her too much yet. But I, I imagine that when that moment comes, when I have to tell her to stay off of my Taylor guitar, please, for the last time I've been telling you, don't step on my guitar, that there's going to be this conflict in me because I'm going to be upset, but I love her like nobody else. I mean, she's flesh of our flesh. This, this is a blessing of God. And that's kind of the same emotion that Paul was experience here, experiencing here. He was distressed. 
It's a complex emotion. It's the same word that is used often in the Old Testament when God talks about being distressed over the people of Israel and their constant turning back to the idols. A God who had created a people for His pleasing and His choosing. A people that He loved. A people that was picked out to be the representation for His kingdom on the earth. Constantly turning back from Him. Going to foreign gods and going to idols. It's a complex emotion that Paul is experiencing here. So he walks through Athens and he's experiencing this. No doubt he probably saw the, uh, the uh, Acropolis, Acropolis, which was this high monument that housed all of their idols. Kind of like our Cooperstown. Anybody know what Cooperstown is? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Has anybody been to Cooperstown? No. All right, church field trip. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Cooperstown is the Baseball Hall of Fame where all the greats and all the memorabilia is placed and people come and they pay homage to the great Bambino and, and everybody else. Uh, the Acropolis was in that fashion like their Cooperstown that housed all of their gods. Uh, statues that would be anywhere from 30 feet to, to 70 feet high placed in the center. And no doubt Paul walked through this and he saw that. And he saw the many idols. And, and just a side note, it's easy to bag on them and to say, wow, that, that's crazy. But I think we we're all pretty aware of that. They had their idols, and we certainly have our idols. I have my idols, idols of you know, money, sex, entertainment, fame, just the, the idol of me-ism that is so rampant in our culture and society, placing ourselves at the center of everything and having... Whatever, the world revolves around us. They have their idols. We certainly have our idols. So it was sort of their national pastime um, to, to gather and to talk about religion and philosophy and, and what was going on with the gods. They had really like the gossip of the gods because they believed that their gods were just mortal. They were not mortal, but they were, they were people just as they once were, and they somehow they... They were attained a state of immortality, and they actually had problems, and they had temptations, and they had trials, and they had affairs, and they had wars, and there was things going on. So they would gather often to talk about the gossip of the gods. It was like their national pastime, or just the latest thought of philosophy. Um, the Epicureans and the Stoics were two of the leading uh, thinkers of the day. You couldn't get more contrasting beliefs. Uh, the Epicureans, ones that... Um, we're all about happiness and pleasure. And the gods, they're there, but they don't really care about us. Uh, it's all about just pursuing pleasure. And the Stoics, who believe that emotion was all bad, and we just need to, like Stoic, that's where the, you know, that, that phrase comes from, like a Stoic face, somebody who, who's emotionless and who just wants to you know, kind of stiff upper, upper lip. So Paul is this, experiencing this walking around, and he ends up in their marketplace um, which is basically like their downtown hotbed. It's where everything is happening, everything is popping. We don't really have an equivalent to that too much anymore, but the marketplace was not only the place where you would go and buy like your fabric and your produce and everything else. Uh, it was also the place where you would go to get your news. They didn't have iPhones and they didn't have uh, Dennis Richmond on KTTV. I think he retired, though. It's sad. We don't either. We don't either. He's gone. Um, so they would go to the marketplace to get their news and to find out what's going on. And often in the marketplace is where these new ideas, these new thoughts of philosophy, of religion would start to sprout up. So Paul, 
Remember, he's on missionary furlough, walking through the marketplace, begins to hear all these things, already distressed, right? That's just what he sees. And now he's hearing all this, this, this talk about the gods and all this talk about pleasure and happiness and, and what it means to obtain that state. And he can't help himself. <laughs> because once you're a missionary, there's just no way out of it, that's for sure. So Paul takes these contrasting beliefs, uh, these Stoics and these Epicureans, like the Crips and Bloods of philosophy, if you like. And he takes these two guys. That's pretty hardcore, huh? <laughs> the Crips and Bloods of philosophy. And he takes them and he actually turns them together against him. <laughs> they started calling him a babbler. That word babbler, it's the imagery of a chicken that's pecking away and just has no purpose. Like it doesn't know what it's doing. It's just pecking and, and, and spewing things out with no purpose. Just words after words that have no meaning. He's pecking away with no real purpose. And their main problem is at this one point that he's talking about, the resurrection of a man, of a God named Jesus. They believed in immortality. They did. But they believed once dead, always dead. There ain't no coming back. So for some insignificant Jewish person to be marching into Athens, the high place of thought, and to be proclaiming a new way of salvation, not only a new way, but the only way, very jarring for them. And to be saying that there was a God who came, lived, died, and hang on, he rose again? You're a babbler. <laughs> what are you talking about? You're crazy. So the response to crazy Paul has come with us. Picking up in verse 19. They took him and they brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know this new teaching that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And we read this, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, remember, nothing but speaking and talking about these things. Right. Uh, the Areopagus, just, just a word on that, it, it translates to, to Mars Hill. It's also a temple for the, for the god of Ares, the god of war. Um, and these people would hang out in this temple, and they would discuss uh, things of religion and philosophy. And it's also where people would go f for uh, war crimes to be judged. Um, it's the elite of the elite. There's a council of elders there. So they take him to this place to hear him out, to discuss what he was talking about. So here stands Paul, which by no way is, I mean, that, that's a miracle in and of itself for Paul to have this opportunity. It's absolutely incredible. And so what does he do? He attempts to, first, he finds the common ground here. He says, men of Athens, which is sort of bringing a commonality. He's speaking in their language, Greece and Greek as well. Um, and men of Athens is the way that they addressed each other. It's the way that Aristotle would address them. He finds the common ground, which is a good thing to do um, when you're evangelizing, right? To kind of find that, that place, that common ground. Uh, I've been playing a lot of basketball lately, and you could tell I'm super fit, right? Um, <laughs> a couple times a week trying to get back into it and not just to play basketball but there's a group of guys that just really trying to, to minister to and about a month ago I almost got in a fight with one of them so that's not very good on me. <laughs> but we it really opened a door actually out of that situation to begin to talk and communicate so God uses that stuff. It's great. Um, but I'm attempting to find the common ground. Just talking about, sorry to say, my new favorite NBA team. 
the Los Angeles Lakers. <laughs> All right. Don't worry. I will never, never root for the Dodgers, that's for sure. That's, you don't have to worry about that. Um, but we find the common ground. We talk about Kobe. We talk about how insane we think LeBron is and how Kobe is just going to pounce on him this upcoming year. Um, just to find that common ground. Because it would be kind of random just to show up on the hoop court, get your fives on, you get the ball passed, and say, hey guys, Jesus is Lord. <laughs> and you know what? You all need to repent because you're going to hell. Watch this three-pointer. <laughs> like, that would be kind of random and strange, wouldn't it? So trying to take a little bit more of a relational approach and find the common ground, we could say a lot about that maybe just a little bit. I think a relational evangelism sometimes is a farce that sometimes we wait so long and de develop that common ground that we forget what we were there for. Yeah. And we're waiting, God, show me the door. God, show me the door. And because we never see the red light come on, you know, we don't see the, the angel speaking to us, that we never come out and we never say it. You guys know sometimes it's great just to proclaim who Jesus is? Yeah. Okay, I was just checking. All right, you guys are good. So Paul, beginning to find the common ground, says, Men of Athens, in verse 22, he stood up, he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. As we read this already, um, he's, he's beginning to be very relational with them. And then let's pick up in verse uh, 24. He begins to do what is talked about in Jude, what is talked about, I think, in Corinthians 2. He begins to contend for the faith. Here he goes. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord. That word Lord, He is master, owner, someone to be respected and awed. He is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by your hands. I like to think that He probably pointed. See these temples? He doesn't live there. And He is not served by human hands as if He needed anything because He Himself gives all men life breath, and everything else. Does that leave anything out? I didn't think so. I thought I read it wrong. But life, breath, and everything else. He doesn't live in your temples. He's not served by your hands. You know what that word served mean, means? Where we get what that word translates for us? It's therapy. <laughs> I think that's cool. He's not aided. He's not somehow gently massaged or he's not assisted or he doesn't need to be made feel, feel, feel better. He doesn't come and sit on your couch and say, you know, this God thing is rough. <laughs> Let me tell you, creating the world seven days, whether what you think of that's literal time or whatever, man, that was, that was a rough task. Oh, God, it's okay. You're, you're so good. Don't, you know, he's not served by us. He doesn't need that. He sustains himself just fine. Thank you very much. Here's something that might sound heretical. He doesn't need your worship. <laughs> you say that's right? Wow. Okay. He doesn't need your praise. He's doing okay without it. He's before. He's beyond. He's creator. He's sustainer. But here's the cool thing is he deserves it. He's worthy of it. He's not served by what we bring Him, but He offers Himself to us in relationship 
a broken people far away, He makes His grace abound to us so that we can praise Him. He deserves it. He's worthy of our praises. Verse 26. There's like three different points in this message, so we'll see where it all lands at the end here. From one man, He made every nation of men, which was a slight at the rampant racism that was going on there. People picking other races apart, other religions apart. He says, guys, He made everyone, every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And He determined the time set for them. Uh, this would, the Epicureans would have been hearing this. Well, I thought life was just all about pleasure and that God, He didn't really care about my ins and outs and that I'm here just to have pleasure and just to have fun. Nope. He determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. And then He... this was Man, guys, I wish we could be there in the setting and really understand how jarring this really is. We sit here and we can say amen because it's exciting, but for them, this is revolutionary talk. This is... You're tearing apart everything I believe, everything that I hold true. So He begins to bring back the common ground here. He even starts quoting some of their poets. For in Him we live, move, and have our being. We are His offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Did Paul have some guts or what? (laughs) For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of all this to all men by raising him from the dead. You want the proof for this? He's alive. You want to know how I know this stuff? The God who spoke these words, he is alive. So in one fell swoop, in one not very seeker-sensitive sermon... (laughs) He begins destroying and taking apart, and we could spend more time at the words here, just taking apart their beliefs, the things that they hold, held dear, the things that they thought were true and right. Uh, some things he's saying. He's saying that God is maker, and He's not made. You didn't create Him. And He guides history. And He alone will dictate who rises and who falls. Yeah. Not Alexander the Great. Not your strength of your military power. God alone decides these things. And we need Him, not the other way around. As we already alluded to, His greatness does not depend on you. He's not looking for your assistance. He's not looking for your therapy. He's not in trouble. You are. He doesn't have problems affairs, wars, sins. He's not in a position where He needs to be saved. We need to be saved. And without Him, there is darkness. There is judgment. Without Him, you are lost. And we can again say amen to this. But I think sometimes, well, I'll just say, I know that I have this mindset in my own life, in my own walk, Um, I wouldn't say that God needs me. 
But sometimes, if I'm honest, I think that he's lucky to have me. <laughs> really, it wasn't meant to be a joke. That's an interesting reaction. But, you know, um, I'm fairly handsome. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> Oh, come back. Oh. I have extreme athletic capabilities. Okay. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> you know, as I was going through the room that we're staying in, my old room, which is weird to be staying there with your wife now. It's just kind of strange. Um, uh, we did some rearranging there, and we came upon some old yearbooks which are just great to kind of relive those, those years. I even found my CIF program from when we were in the semifinals of, of the state of California in basketball, looking through the program and thinking, oh, man, I, I had it going on for sure. Like, God, I know you don't need me, but, man, you're pretty darn lucky to have me. I mean, let's, let's just get, get honest here. I mean, I, I, I bring a lot to the table. <laughs> I'm witty, I'm wise, I'm good looking. I have a lot to offer you. But you know, that kind of thinking can get us in trouble. Yeah, is it that obvious? Okay. <laughs> yeah, Lindy will say yeah. Because if we think that way, you know, what happens when we're in a tough spot? You know, what happens when you think you've, you've done everything the way that you are supposed to do? And we could raise our hands, many of us, and probably say, I've experienced this where, you know, God, I've, I've lived a clean life. You know, I waited to have sex until I was married, and I should automatically now have an amazing sex life. Isn't that how that works? <laughs> Not a problem, but um, we'll just stop there. Or <laughs> She's getting ready to throw the bottle of water. There it is. <laughs> This is an all ages thing. Oh, I forgot. Sorry, Pastor Nancy. Um, do you guys use GarageBand and you could edit that and everything else? Okay. But 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 don't we do that? God, you know, I've I've lived my life clean for you. I've I've gone to church. You know, I, I've tied. I've done the things, and those are all great things to do. Believe me, that we we should be living our life in a way that honors God. But then when we're in a spot where we're in trouble, sometimes our reaction could be, well, God, you owe me. <laughs> I mean, when I could have been out going crazy, like all of my friends are, you know, some of you guys maybe that are, that are at college, it's a difficult time, isn't it, to, to, to live, a, live a life that's upstanding. And we could say, God, when I was there, I didn't really go all bananas like that, so now you owe me something. Guys, he doesn't owe us anything. Right. He's given us everything already in the person of His Son, in the work of the cross. We have all that we will ever need. Do you believe that? That in Jesus, in His saving power and grace, you have all that you will ever need? Even in the midst of troubles and trials, that He is your Savior and that you have all you will ever need? Even if things don't pan out how you think or expect that they should, do you believe that you have all that you will ever need? And that God doesn't owe you? Because what happens when we begin to make these lists? God, for me, here's my list. 
Um, I was chaplain when I was in high school. <laughs> I preached my first message when I was at sixth grade, in sixth grade, and on the merit because my dad was a pastor, and I don't even think I ever told you, but he was out of town, so I had to wing it. So that went good. Um, God, I, I went to a, a Christian university. I'm, I'm a theology, religion major. God, I was a two-year letterman in high school. <laughs> I think God just sometimes just, just waits for us to do our list. And then maybe he points us back and says, that's great. Good for you. Here's what I did. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> we got it. We're getting it. That's it. You guys are a lot more rowdy than Orange County. <laughs> God maybe pulls out his list. Good job on you. Here's what I did. Life. Oh, that's pretty good. Breath. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Oh, and everything else. <laughs> Life, breath, and everything else. And I am not served by your hands. I'm not sustained by what you bring me. I am God I am creator. Also, come be with me. Have a relationship with me. Because in your weakness, I supply all that you will ever need. Life, breath, and everything else are now available to you. <laughs> He's not a mean God who, okay, here's my list, here's your list, okay, see you later. He says, no, these things are now available to you. In the package, the amazing, undefinable, unthinkable, unspeakable package of grace. These things are supplied to us. So he's not served by our hands. We don't need him. Excuse me. We need him, not the other way around. And you don't have to be left in darkness. You don't have to be left in your ignorance anymore. That judgment is coming and you need salvation. You need salvation. Uh, verse 32. Let's pick, let's pick up here. As they were, I'm sure, beginning to think, how could this be true? How can these amazing, unthinkable things this person is saying, how could they possibly be true? When they had heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to, to hear on you again about the subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a few others. Not really what you would say a successful missionary journey at first glance, but as the story unfolds, these people are they're, they're named for a reason because they're extremely influential and they would uh, be the people that would be the pillars of the church that would be planted here in, in Athens now. So Paul is saying, guys, you know something, but you don't really know. Uh, to an unknown God, you can attribute that there's something that is absent from your thinking and that you don't really know what to attribute that to. That you have an appearance of morality, that you have an appearance of a society that, that is well put together, but you don't really know. That there's something that you are missing. There's something you don't fully know. And that person is the person of Jesus Christ. Yes. And actually, everything else doesn't really matter. If this one thing is true, that Jesus rose from the dead then everything else 
falls into place from that. And it's a shame that we don't really see um, Paul get to make his last point here. He gets cut off because what he was saying was, was so was so jarring here. And as he would, I'm sure, continue, as he continued in, in other of his sermons and other places of his letters, he would have brought it back, I'm sure, and says, guys, he did not come simply to judge, but here's the good news. He came to bear your judgment. That you don't have it all figured out. That you know that there's something missing. And that it's Him. And He's here to bear your judgment, your sin, the penalty of your sin, your death. That there was a God who was so greatly distressed in such a complex love of anger and compassion all at once that He was so glad to die and so angry that it was sin your sin that led him to die, a complex love. And because of this complex love, those of you who believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And the question, as we were saying, how can you be sure? And it's a question for us. When you're out, when you're evangelizing, when you're building relationships, when you're proclaiming the truth of of who God is, uh, bound to happen often is that question is, well, how do you know this? How can you be sure? This sounds like a great thing that you're presenting to me, but how... Do you know the truth of this? And it was a great question for Paul. So how could Paul know this? You know, Paul could have gone through a, the historical evidence as we could of Christ. We could do um, logical deduction, excuse me, logical uh, reasoning exercises of, about the historical facts of Christ. We could do exercises and, and look at all the historical pieces and prove that to people and try to prove a logical explanation for everything. But it comes down to this one thing for Paul, and it should come down to this one thing for us, because he had encountered the living, the living, risen, personal God and had entered into relationship with Him. That more than anything else, what did Paul know? How did he know this is true? Because he knew of who he spoke, spoke of. Because he had encountered the living, the personal Jesus Christ. And that his life had forever been changed. That he knew him. And knowing him implies intimacy. To know him in a way that was so intimate that he could speak for him. That yeah, he could have you know, maybe said some, some other great logical things. But he knew him in such a way that nothing else mattered. So do you know him in that way? Do you know him in such a way that you are driven? That you are compelled everywhere, whether you're supposed to be on furlough or whatever, with everything that you have, to go into the marketplace, to proclaim Him as King in situations where it's uncomfortable, in situations where you feel overmatched? Are you driven by such a love, compelled because of what He has done for you? You may not be able to fully explain Him. You may not know everything about Him. And if you do, raise your hand and we'd like to talk to you after service. (laughs) But do you know Him as your Savior? Do you know Him in such a way that your life looks differently? Does your life have the evidence of the relationship with an intimate Creator God? Are you in contact with people in such a way that they say, hang on a second, (laughs) something different? Are they alerted to a presence that's greater within you because of your relationship with a saving God? Are you compelled to live out Christ publicly? Do you know Him in such a way that you're driven to proclaim who He is? Do you have a passionate, 
complex love within inside of you that will not allow you just to be on furlough, to sit on the sidelines, that you're a person who wants to be involved, that you may not have everything figured out, but because of what you've experienced, because of the life change that you've experienced, there's evidence and you know there's no other truth that Christ has come, that He has died, that He has risen, and that I am saved, that I am free. And knowing that, guys, is greater than anything else that you can know. You may not know how to have great conversations. You may not know in front of people who are seemingly more smart than you, whatever that might mean, how to explain it. But guys, be a people who are just so passionate about the love you've experienced. And I'm telling you, that's enough. That's enough because it's really, in the end, it's not really up to us. It's about the Holy Spirit and what He does and watching and waiting and seeing what He's up to and allowing Him to do the work. And all that we do is we pray in the Spirit, we set ourselves in the Spirit, and we say, God, what are you doing? What are you up to? You know, so often our prayers are, God, would you bless me? Would would you give me this? Would you bless this opportunity? Would you bless these things? And that's an okay prayer to pray. But I think often we need to pray the reverse and say, God, what are you already doing? Let me go and bless that. Where are you working? In my life, what are you already doing? What things have you prepared already in my relationships, in my conversations throughout, to the, throughout the day? And where can I go and bless that? Good. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. And we would often even pray, God, I want more of you. And I think he's saying, yes, but I want more of you. <laughs> we would pray, God, give me more of you. But I think we should switch our prayers sometimes, honestly, and say, God, take more of me. What are you doing? You are greater. Let me go and bless that. And you'll be amazed at the ways that he'll begin to work in your life. So, guys, I hope that is encouraging and helpful in some way. And, and to know that this just isn't a story, although it's an amazing story. This is historical and everything else. But this is something that we're meant to carry on. And that really our greatest mandate as Christians is to proclaim who He is to a hurt and broken world. That we are all called to evangelize in whatever setting, whatever state you find yourself in. That is, it is our mandate to speak the truth of who He is to a dying and broken world. Guys, let's stand as we come to the close here.